Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up. Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs. Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. Hello guys and a warm welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a podcast that covers the more unusual and obscure cases from the shores of the UK, both solved cases and unsolved ones. As ever, I'm your host Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are the enthusiasts who make it all worthwhile doing it each week and I'm so glad you can be here. Thanks very much for joining me. So I hope everybody's good this week. I'm pretty good myself, busy as ever, you know how it is. Uh, just getting ready for the last quarter of the series now, just picking the cases and writing them up, researching them, busy, busy as ever. I've got to say, I've loved doing this series, I've had an absolute blast researching and writing up the cases, and you guys seem to enjoy it from the scores of great reviews and shares that I get for the show. I'm eternally grateful for all of them, and it really does mean the world to me to see, so thanks very much guys. So even though I've just got four episodes left of this series after this one today, uh, I still will be on Patreon as per ever. So there'll still be an episode on the first of each month and my hiatus between series, I won't be away that long, probably about a month or so. But that's a few weeks away just yet. There's still some great episodes left to come. As I say, I have been picking and choosing the final four cases for the series and I think I've got them all squared away now. The Fridge Blackboard, gets chopped and changed all the time so I don't know what kind of order they'll come in but they should all come I'm quite satisfied with that now as I said I will still be on Patreon for the time I'm away so you can still catch me then and for any new listeners if you would like to hear extra episodes of the show there'll be eight come the 1st of September then you can find me on Patreon as the true crime enthusiast or the link is in my show notes with my social media contact details as ever Big thanks also this week to my latest Patreon supporters who are very kindly supporting the show. That's William McInnes, Catherine Spencer-Cook and Karen Toussaint Bowden. Thanks very much guys. I hope that you've enjoyed the bonus episodes that are currently available. Now the promo this week is from The Murder in My Family and it's yet another one from across the pond in the US. And many of you will be familiar with the host, a guy called Mike Morford as he's one half of the Criminology podcast, and that surely needs no introduction. He's branched out from there, bringing a new show called The Murder in My Family, which is a show that not just tells stories of murders and their unfortunate victims, 
but it rather tells the story from the perspective of the victim's family also, which is a project that obviously takes some compassion and sensitivity to do, and I think it's not only worthwhile, but it's very respectful also. So it's over to Mike. Murder. The unlawful premeditated killing of one human being by another. A short, simple definition of a word that we're all familiar with. For most of us, murder is just that. A word or a definition that has no impact on our lives. But to some people, murder is much more than that. It's real. It's personal because they've lost a loved one to murder. And I want to share their stories with you. My name is Mike Morford, and some of you may know me as co-host of the true crime podcast, Criminology. I'd like to invite you to check out my new podcast, The Murder in My Family. In each episode, I'll recount a single murder case and talk one-on-one with the family members of these victims to see how these tragic crimes changed their lives and where their search for justice has taken them since. Starting in July of 2018, you can find and subscribe to The Murder in My Family on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you'll join me for The Murder in My Family. Thanks very much, Mike. The link to The Murder in My Family is with my own show notes as usual, or you can find it pretty much wherever you source your podcasts from. Apple, Spotify, Podcast Addict, all of them. This week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I've gone with the title The Farmer, The Jolly Farmer and The Not-So-Jolly Farmer. I'm sure the title will become clear as the episode progresses. I have three cases featured in the episode, two of them being as yet unsolved cases and the third being a bit more of a familiar crime than I usually cover on the show, but a solved and celebrated one and one I've always considered to be a fascinating case. As with when I cover any other unsolved cases on the show, what I do is I recount the known facts about the case, and then I offer my own opinions and theories based on the evidence that's available. I don't in any way tend to stress that what I say is gospel and what's happened, it's just purely my own opinion. Please be advised that this week's episode does contain descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is advised as ever. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week first, we look back at a case of murder in Chapel Amble. Chapel Amble is a tiny village in the Cornwall Civil Parish of St Q that has its earliest mention in the Doomsday Book, with the name of the village deriving from the Cornish word Amaleglos, which means church on the River Amble. Love these little bits of, uh, these snippets of info that you get like that. I think they're great, aren't they? So it's a picturesque and affluent place. It's sparsely populated though, and it does contain very little except for a few houses, a tiny shop, a post office, and a local pub. It's the kind of village where nothing earth-shattering ever seems to happen. That is, until April 2002 when Chapel Amble found itself at the centre of a horrific, brutal and as yet unsolved murder mystery. It was depicted at the time of the murder as like something found in an Agatha Christie setting and a murder worthy of the little grey cells of Hercule Poirot himself. Yet there's nothing romantic about this crime, nor is it from the pages of a mystery thriller. 
The victim was an elderly widowed farmer, 71-year-old Leslie Bate. He was a well-known figure in the local area, described by those who knew him as being a true Cornish character, and Les was a self-made millionaire, owning a total of four farms, which collectively held several hundred acres of land. Les had spent his life in farming, and he'd amassed his fortune through sheer hard work, with local legend claiming that he'd obtained the finance to purchase his first farm purely through revenue gained through shooting rabbits. It was claimed that he'd averaged shooting between 80,000 to 100,000 rabbits a year, which were then sold and shipped off to all parts of the country. Now this does seem an extreme figure because I sat down and did some sums about that, and that would work out about 250 rabbits each day. So I'd be inclined to take that story with a pinch of salt, really. Nevertheless, the rumour persisted, and with a hard work ethic such as this, and being an astute businessman, taking advantage of the various subsidies that were available to him, this had long since made Les a very wealthy man. So much so that he was considered by many as being ostentatious, or flashy even, often making a show of having a wallet full of money, and wearing excess amounts of chunky gold jewellery, like a bit of a Dell boy, you know? Since his wife Nancy had sadly passed away from cancer two years before, Les liked to enjoy a drink at night, and he was a regular at the Maltster's Arms in Chapel Amble. He was there almost every night, where he would enjoy a few pints of lager sat on his usual stool at the bar, and would tell a few stories, have a bit of a laugh and a joke, and take advantage of any pub bet, such as arm wrestling, or even join in with high japes, such as swallowing live fish, which he was reported to have done at least once in the pub. Well, it takes all sorts, that really, doesn't it? I mean, that kind of puts me off ever going to Cornwall, if you're going to see things like that, really. I think that's awful. Les would invariably leave the pub at closing time, and having no regard for the drink-driving laws, he'd just drive his red Land Rover Discovery the two miles from the pub along the rural country lanes to his home, a big building called Tregilda's Farm. But although Les was well known in the area, this doesn't mean to suggest that he was liked by all who knew him. There's plenty of evidence to suggest that many people actually strongly disliked him due to the type of man that he was. Local rumours were rife that he had in the past evicted farm tenants from his land unfairly, purely because he'd taken some sort of personal dislike to them. He was known to be politically forthright and outspoken, and he'd often hold court in the monster's arms, equally entertaining and offending locals with his right-wing opinions about immigration, benefit claims, the government, and his colourful tales of a lifetime that he'd spent in farming. He was considered by many to be cantankerous, and he thought nothing of airing his exact views to people, regardless of the risk of offending anyone. Indeed, before he was murdered, Les had only recently become a regular at the Maltster's Arms, as he'd been barred from his previous local, the St. Q Inn, for being abusive to the staff and customers there, after many complaints they felt they'd had no choice but to bar him from the premises. So on the night that he died, Friday the 12th of April 2002, Led has, as usual, been at the Maltster's Arms. That evening there were about 30 people in the establishment, mostly filled with locals, but also a couple of faces that were unknown to the regulars. Les had been his usual self, holding court with stories and joking about, and had several times throughout the evening made a show of flashing his wallet about. 
That evening, he had especially shown off the fact that he was carrying about £1,000 in cash on him, as well as having a cheque for £11,000 on his person, and he'd ignored the advice of several regulars at the pub to stop flashing his cash about. The extensive summer cash that he had on him is said to have been the result of rent collection from various tenants of his. Les, as usual, left the pub after closing time, just shortly after closing time that evening, and he'd driven his usual route home. All through the next day, Les's daughter Kathy, who lived in Australia, had tried to contact him by telephone, but to no avail. Concerned that Les was perhaps ill or injured, she eventually contacted her brother Martin, Les's other son, who lived nearby to Chapel Amble, and asked him to go and check on their father to ensure everything was okay. So Martin agreed, and he went round to his father's farm at 11.30am on Sunday the 14th of April. He found Les laying face down in a pool of blood inside the house in a utility corridor near to the back door. He was clearly dead and had been for some time. Badly shaken, Martin raised the alarm and police and emergency services attended the scene. Because there was no weapon present at the scene, or any evidence of forced entry to the farm, it was at first thought that Les had died as the result of banging his head after a drunken fall. A post-mortem carried out proved inconclusive as to the cause of death, but some days later, nearly two weeks later to be exact, a second more exhaustive post-mortem was ordered and was carried out because of this. This second post-mortem found evidence to suggest that Les had actually suffered a brutal beating, as internal injuries were found, several broken bones, and severe head injuries. How these were missed at the initial post-mortem has never been satisfactorily explained, but here police now had evidence that they were dealing with a murder. Now that's pretty remiss really, isn't it? I mean, you'd think you'd pick up broken ribs, severe head injuries and internal wounds on a post-mortem when you'd think that's what you were looking for. That's a, that's a suspect death, isn't it? Of course it is. I think that's pretty shoddy myself. So here police now had evidence that they had a murder on their hands and one that the killer had a near fortnight head start to escape detection from. With news that a murderer was potentially living in their midst, a shadow of fear fell over the small community. Many locals had their own suspicions about who was responsible for the murder, and local gossip and theories were rife. The Chapel Amble postmaster, Barry Cuff, said, This has been a terrible shock. If the police are right, this was carried out by someone we all know, perhaps someone who comes into this post office every day. So the murder hunt began, with 50 officers working around the clock to try to solve the first recorded violent crime in the village since 1373. A forensic examination of Tregilda's farm was undertaken. Lanes and hedgerows surrounding the house were searched for a discarded possible murder weapon, and police began interviewing locals. Those who knew Les and customers who frequented both the Maltster's Arms and the St. Q Inn were interviewed, and every customer that could be traced who had used these premises was questioned, fingerprinted, and DNA tested. Establishing Les's last known movements, police heard customers at the Maltster's Arms tell of Les flashing his cash around and the cheque on the night that he was murdered, and of course, these were missing along with his wallet. The wallet or cheque have never been found, 
nor as any murder weapon. Police strongly believed from the outset of the hunt that the primary motive was robbery and that there was a local angle to the crime, with the officer leading the hunt, Detective Superintendent Chris Borland, saying, This has all the hallmarks of somebody who knew that Les would be returning and was probably waiting for him to come home and then attacked him. People knew he often used to carry significant amounts of cash with him and my view is that there's definitely a local angle to this. We are keeping an open mind but all the indications are that this was carried out by a person or persons who knew him. Crimes in such a small locale as Chapel Amble would ex- be expected to be solved sooner rather than later, but by the time Les's funeral was held in September 2002, police were still no nearer to catching his killer. Over 900 statements had been taken in the inquiry, and a sizable number of actions followed up, but all to no avail. Police did, however, have two clues to go on. Blue suede fibres were found on Les's body, they didn't appear in his Land Rover, and they were sought to have come from the killer or killers wearing industrial-type gloves. Of course, this was so vague a lead as to be a non-starter, really. No abandoned gloves were ever found, despite a sizable fingertip search of the area. The second clue was much more promising, but has so far again led to nothing. Traces of DNA belonging to someone other than Les were found on items of the outer clothing that he was wearing when he died. But a match wasn't initially forthcoming. All locals were tested against the sample, and detectives even visited the shop in the nearby town of Weybridge where the clothing had been bought in order to compare and eliminate the DNA of the staff who worked there against the sample. All of these were ruled out, and to this day, a match for the DNA source has never been found on the National DNA Database. The suspect list police built up bit by bit drew a blank also. Although it was known that not everybody liked Les, police could never pinpoint anyone who disliked him enough to want him dead like that. So it does seem that robbery was indeed the motive for Les's murder, and had his killer robbed him before. In October 2001, Tregilda's farm had suffered a burglary while Les was out for the evening. Some valuable paintings had been taken, and a safe containing over £47,000 in cash had been forced open and emptied at the farm. Had those responsible for this burglary returned? It's very likely that those responsible are local to, or at least very familiar with, the Chapel Amble area, and almost definite that they knew Les and his movements and habits. These are local killers, and I do stress plural there, for I believe there was more than one person responsible. Although Les wasn't a fit youngster, he was still stocky and powerful for a 71-year-old, and he was the type of person who would definitely have a go against any intruder. In fact, since his burglary in October 2001, it was reported that Les had taken to sleeping with a loaded shotgun next to him, and he'd been heard telling several patrons of the Maltster's Arms that he had no qualms about using it against an intruder. So had someone overheard him saying this, and thought there was more safety to rob Les in numbers? It's perhaps for this reason that Les was killed, as the result of a struggle if he would have had a go back. Yet he suffered a really horrendous beating, much more than necessary to incapacitate a 71-year-old man. He had broken ribs and severe head injuries that forensic examiners at the scene 
believed had been caused by his head being repeatedly bashed into a corner of the washing machine nearby. So was this heat-of-the-moment bloodlust? It's pretty impossible to pinpoint any suspects in this crime, but I believe that those responsible are the perpetrators of, or at least well-known to, those responsible for the October 2001 burglary at Les's farm. The chances of two separate unconnected incidents of robbery in such a short space of time in such a localised area are highly improbable. Theorising that everyone in the locality has been subject to a mass DNA screening and the fact that Les was either followed home or someone was laying in wait for him, then the main suspects for elimination have to be the people in the monster's arms that Friday evening who were unknown to the locals. The possibility may also exist that those responsible form part of the travelling community who could have been in the pub that evening, and that would account for them being missed in any mass DNA screening because they've moved on to another part of the country. They could have been watching Les, saw him leave the pub, and then relayed a message to someone laying in wait at Tregilda's farm for him to come home or even followed him home from the pub. There are plenty of hiding places around the farm for a person, or even a vehicle to remain out of sight. Plus it is in quite an isolated location, so any risk of being sighted would be minimal. The fact that he was found by the back door in a utility corridor suggests that Les was attacked as he opened the door, which suggests to me that someone was laid in wait for him. This is a very, very sad crime, and one that should have been detected swiftly, I think. Perhaps the two-week delay in discovering that it actually was a crime was an omen of a flawed and foundering investigation that was to come. It stands to reason that in such a rural, small community, locals will have their own knowledge or suspicions about those responsible, and the said suspicions must have come to the attention of police. It's reported that several people were arrested in the course of the inquiry, some of them having criminal records, and at least one who was known to have been a sworn enemy of Les. Yet no one's ever been charged with his murder, and a DNA match for traces of the ki- left by the killer has so far not been found. There's also the possibility, of course, that Les's killer is now dead also, and so will never face justice. Les's family refused to believe this, however, and they still live in hope that one day, either through someone's conscience getting the better of them and they speak to police, or a DNA or familial DNA match being found, that his killer will be brought to justice. His daughter Kathy echoed as such in an interview with the Devon Western Morning News in 2012, saying, I'm fairly confident that one day I will get a call. I'm less optimistic than I was previously and we are now 10 years on, but we do live with that expectation. I've said all along that the person that has done this is being protected by a wife or girlfriend or someone close to them. I know after 10 years, it's not really likely that they'll come forward now, but I would still like to appeal to that person's decency. Yet even though 16 years have passed now, I do believe it is still possible. Of course it's still possible. Someone likely knows, but as time passes and the case is in danger of being all but forgotten, it will most likely be through a DNA hit of someone arrested for another crime or a familial DNA match on the National DNA Database. I could only hope that a match does come sooner rather than later because Les's children and his grandchildren deserve the answers and he deserves some justice.
We move on now from Cornwall to the village of Blacknest in Hampshire, which is a quaint English village the like of which number into the thousands across the country. I used to live very near to Blacknest a number of years ago when I was in the forces, and I remember it being a kind of blink-and-you-miss-it kind of place, although lovely and very affluent. Yet this village, however, has a macabre claim to fame unlike the vast majority of other villages its size. Blacknest has set the scene for not one, but two brutal murders in its history, and both have centred on what's commonplace to the hubbub of any small village's life, the local pub. The local pub in Blacknest is a place called the Jolly Farmer, a great and sizable pub to go for a decent Sunday lunch. When I lived nearby, I used to frequent it all the time, and there'd be a few cut. There'd be few customers, barring the regulars and locals, that could ever really imagine the dark deeds that have happened here without reading the immortalisation that both murders have received in a display on the walls. I'd never heard of either case before reading about it on the wall in the bar of the pub itself one night, and being the true crime enthusiast that I obviously am, my attention's drawn straight away, and subsequently, it's a place I've never forgotten. In the 19th century, on the site where the Jolly Farmer stands now, was once an alehouse named the Cricketers. It was in the Cricketers one night that the landlord, the fantastically named Cypress Knight, took a shotgun and in a drunken stupor, blasted his wife to death during a row. Within hours of the murder, Knight was arrested and detained, and following his trial for a murder some time later, he was hanged at Winchester Prison. The cricketers never recovered from this horrific incident, and it was knocked down a couple of years later. A new pub took its place on the site a short time afterwards, the Jolly Farmer. But in 1989, fate repeated itself, and this pub was again the scene of a horrific incident. It was the run-up to Christmas, and the village was in excited full preparation getting ready for it, as is every other village around that time. The external lights had gone up in the area, Christmas functions had already gotten well into full swing by then, and people were looking forward to finishing work and school for a couple of days to enjoy the festive season. But at 2.40am on the morning of Tuesday, December the 5th, 1989, a massive explosion shook the village. It was loud enough to have been heard more than two miles away, and residents woken by the blast became rapidly aware that the source of the explosion was the Jolly Farmer pub. Locals rushed from their houses to the scene to help, and they awaited the emergency services, who were there in force inside of 15 minutes. The explosion had been massive and the pub was totally destroyed, causing massive damage to the surrounding area also. All that remained of the premises was the chimney stack, the outside post box and the pub sign, albeit now badly scorched and damaged. Christmas presents, furniture and glasses lay strewn across the roads where the force of the blast had deposited them, and beer casks and bottles were found in neighbouring fields more than a hundred yards away. Afterwards, local and emergency services described the scene as being like that out of a film about King Arthur. In the midst of the flaming rubble and mortar, a solitary hand was spotted poking through the wreckage. It belonged to the Jolly Farmer bar manager, Richard Dean, who lived above the pub in the staff quarters. Regardless of their own safety, rescuers climbed onto the rubble and brick by brick, 
managed to pull him out of the fire to safety. Richard had suffered severe burns to more than a quarter of his body, and he would subsequently suffer mental issues and trauma, but he was at least alive. Pub chef Clifford Howes had not been as lucky, however. He too lived above the pub, and was found the following morning, almost burned beyond recognition, in the remnants of what had been the cellar. The 34-year-old had died a horrific and agonising death, being burned alive whilst trapped under burning beams and pinned down by heavy flaming masonry. Initially this was thought to have been a tragic accident. Richard was too badly injured to give any coherent story about what had happened, and any possible number of causes of the explosion were considered. It could have been an electrical fault or short. It could have been caused by a discarded cigarette downstairs that had smouldered and caused a fire or Richard and Clifford fallen asleep while smoking in bed. There were several instances that could have caused the fire to ignite, and with the amounts of flammable liquid and canisters of pressurised gas that would have been in the pub as an accelerant for it, then an explosion would have likely been inevitable. However, two discoveries the next morning caused investigators to determine that the fire was no accident, but rather had been started deliberately. Firstly, when the body of Clifford Howes was discovered, an overwhelming smell of petrol was detected in the remains of the cellar. Staff who worked there, along with the owner, confirmed that any flammable fuel such as that would have strictly not been stored in the cellar alongside pressurised gas canisters. Secondly, it was then discovered that the telephone lines to the Jolly Farmer had not been destroyed by the explosion but had rather been deliberately cut, preventing anyone at the pub contacting emergency services. Detectives realised they were now dealing with a murder. Fire service investigators later determined that the fire had been started by the killer, or killers, pouring several gallons of petrol down through the locked wooden louvre doors of the pub cellar. A homemade wick had then been placed down into the cellar and ignited, but this had failed to burn down. However, the petrol vapour had still built up in the atmosphere of the confined space of the cellar, and a recently installed electric dehumidifier had activated, causing an electric spark which ignited the petrol vapours and caused the massive explosion to burst upwards. Former landlord Arthur Tomkinson, who'd attended the scene, recalled afterwards, I had no knowledge of it at all until four or five in the morning and when I got there I was told that one person was in hospital badly injured, and another person was missing. They didn't find Clifford at all initially, and they kept saying that he must have wandered off, and it wasn't until they excavated right down into the cellar that they found him. The full force of the blast went straight up through his room, and it would appear that everything came down on top of him, because he was right down at the bottom of the cellar. Clifford Howes had indeed been asleep in his room at the time of the explosion, and his first floor bedroom had taken the full force of the blast. It had collapsed down into the cellar, and Clifford had died horrifically, although mercifully quickly. What was the motive for doing such an act? Was the fire personally aimed at either Clifford or Richard as a target? Was it done for monetary gain, perhaps in an attempt to claim an insurance payout? Was it somebody who perhaps bore a grudge, 
having been barred from the jolly farmer in the past, or who'd fallen foul of a member of staff? Or was it a mistake, and a different pub that was actually the target, and one that was missed? Police examined the backgrounds of both Clifford and Richard to search for any motive that anybody may have to want them harmed or killed, but they drew a blank. Hampshire police questioned all the locals of Blacknest, and customers and staff from the Jolly Farmer, both past and present, and they examined the theories that I've just previously outlined. All drew a blank. To this day, there is simply no clear motive for the fire that police have ever discovered, but I'll discuss each of these theories shortly. Police did, however, discover as a result of their inquiries that a car had been seen speeding away from the direction of the pub mere seconds after the explosion happened, but frustratingly, a make or a decent description could not be obtained. A massive appeal was launched at the time, but this, and numerous other public appeals, have always failed to identify the driver of this vehicle, and no one has ever come forward to eliminate themselves from this line of inquiry. Police have never had anything else to go on. In a near record time, the pub was actually rebuilt, and just a hundred days after the explosion, it was reopened with a tribute to Clifford immortalised on the wall inside. It soon became a thriving business again, and I always found it a very pleasant place to visit. Arthur Tomkinson, the landlord for many years, sold the pub in 2003, and to this day remains convinced that someone bombed the Jolly Farmer because they'd got the wrong pub. There was absolutely no reason to target us. The police had all these theories for a motive, but they found nothing because there was nothing to find. It was just a quaint little pub in the, vill- in the middle of nowhere. Why would anybody target it? It's ridiculous. I'd like closure. I'd like to know the answer, but it's a thing in my past now, and you have to move on. I'm resigned to the fact that I'll never know. The case still remains open, and is reviewed periodically as funding becomes available. The latest review back in 2003, however, failed to generate any new lines of inquiry. The detective who was in charge of the original investigation, Chief Superintendent Mike Southwell, is now retired, yet he remains haunted still and baffled by the case because the killer or killers have not been brought to justice, and it understandably sits uneasy with him that the case to date remains unsolved. He said later, It's not closed and there are still things that we need to find out about that case. I am convinced to this day that the murderer is still detectable. So what was the reason behind such a heinous act? Well, there are several possible motives. It could be for profit, to conceal a crime. It could be vandalism or excitement. It could be for revenge. It could even be extremism. With all cases of suspicious fires, those who would benefit from any insurance claims and payouts are suspected and looked at first, but police ruled this out as a motive here. The backgrounds of all current and former staff who worked at the Jolly Farmer were examined in depth, along with regular customers, but nothing or no one was discovered as a result of these inquiries, who bore a grudge or indeed had any motive for wanting anyone killed or the pub destroyed. No one was found to be involved in anything illegal, that would warrant the pub being destroyed to conceal either. 
Extremism seems to be unlikely as a motive. There would be much more likely targets to choose for this, and no organisation has ever claimed responsibility for the action, which would defeat the purpose of extremism, wouldn't it? I'd also consider vandalism or excitement to be unlikely. Vandals would not likely go to the trouble of disabling the telephone lines also. The perpetrators of this crime would also need access to a vehicle to transport the amount of fuel used to destroy the pub, and random vandals do not usually travel by car to do so, stopping when they think, oh I want to kick that window through, or I'm going to set that on fire, jump in your car, boom, drive off. No, I don't think that. I think this was a planned and targeted attack. But was this pub the wrong one? And then was it a case of mistaken identity? There are at least 21 pubs around the United Kingdom with the name The Jolly Farmer, probably more, and seven of these are found within the county of Hampshire, so there's a very real possibility that the killer or killers had simply got the wrong pub. But that still leaves the question of why someone would want a pub burned down anyway, and then that falls back to it most likely being out of revenge or for profit. Both of these are very valid and the most likely possibilities, but after the passage of so much time now, and with such a wide net to cover all of these, it seems a near impossible task to do so. The investigation was that thorough and both Clifford and Richard were looked at in such depth that it seems much more likely it was the pub itself that was the target, and not either Clifford or Richard. After all, there are more direct, less risky ways to kill someone that you were planning to kill, Burning a premises down, then waiting to see it burn, provides a risk to the perpetrator themselves of both injury and capture. So it's my opinion that this was in fact mistaken identity, and that the murder of Clifford Howes and the attempted murder of Richard Dean was a secondary outcome, an unintended and unplanned one. The Jolly Farmer remains open today, and is once again a thriving business. Without trying to sound like an advert too much, it's a lovely place to visit, and if you ever find yourself in the village of Blacknest, in the English county of Hampshire, then call in and experience it for yourself. Make sure you take the time to read the local press cuttings concerning the 1989 fire, and take some time to remember that the killer who so callously murdered Clifford Howes, and who came very close to killing Richard Dean, has never yet been brought to justice. There is likely someone out there who has the information needed to do this, but has not yet come forward because a sense of massive guilt or a misguided loyalty may be preventing them from doing so. Hopefully though, as time passes, these loyalties may change or a conscience may get the better of someone, and this person may still come forward and provide the information that's so needed. Details of a number that anyone with any information concerning the case can use to contact police will be with the episode show notes this week. For our final tale now, we're off to the Cotswolds, the largest area of outstanding natural beauty in the UK. It's a popular tourist area and one that's filled with many attractions in the wide area that it spans, with parts of it bordering no less than six different English counties and we head back to April 1984, to a rural part of the Cotswolds called Horton. Monday the 9th of April was a typical spring day there. It was bright but a bit chilly, with rainfall on and off, and there was nothing to suggest anything other 
than it was a normal day at Widden Hill Farm in Horton, the home of 44-year-old farmer Graham Backhouse, his 37-year-old attractive wife Margaret, and their two young children, Harry and Sophie. That morning, Graham, who was a former ladies' hairdresser turned farmer, yeah, I know, go figure, asked his wife Margaret if she wouldn't mind driving to the nearest town to fetch a supply of antibiotics for the farm's livestock. Margaret agreed to do so, and she went to her car, but Graham remembered that the battery was flat on her car, so he suggested that she take the bigger Volvo instead. Smiling pleasantly to her, he told her, Drive carefully, darling, and then watched her for a moment as Margaret prepared herself for the journey. Margaret left the large farmhouse, situated in 480 acres of land on Horton Hill, and walked down towards the Volvo, which was parked just off the gateway of the farmyard. Graham, meanwhile, made his way towards the milking sheds at the rear, accompanied by his herdsman, John Russell. Margaret reached the Volvo, unlocked the door, and got into the driver's seat, placed a bag on the passenger seat, and then turned on the ignition. At the exact same moment, 8.20am, the local school bus taking the area children to the Horton Church of England Primary School was passing the farm when they heard and saw a loud explosion. Bus driver Michael Cleverly saw the Volvo explode in a cloud of smoke and flame and jammed on his brakes. Within seconds, he and several children had gotten off the bus and were at the smouldering wreckage of the vehicle, trying to help Margaret Backhouse. She'd managed to get out and crawl away from the wreckage of the vehicle, dazed and bleeding heavily, and gestured at the party weakly before collapsing on the floor. One of the children at the scene, Susan Wilkie, knew the family well and ran to the milk sheds to alert Graham Backhouse. In the milking sheds, both Graham and John Russell had heard the bang and Backhouse had seemingly thought little of it, but now that Susan was there screaming at him that Margaret had been injured, he rushed out into the yard, stopping only to grab a blanket and crying out, Christ, what's happening? He ran straight over to Margaret and attempted to cover his injured wife with a blanket but she became agitated and hysterical when he did so, crying out, Leave me alone, don't move me, don't touch me. In an understandable state of pain, distress and shock, Margaret Backhouse had no idea what had just happened to her. She only had a fleeting memory of her own feet being blasted away from the control pedals of the Volvo. What had happened to her was simple, although diabolical and horrifying. Margaret had been the victim of a car bomb. Police forensic experts later estimated that the device had been sophisticated. It had been packed with the contents of around a dozen shotgun shells, about four and a half thousand shotgun pellets, and the powder had been used as the explosive while the lead shot was the projectile. This had been compressed into a tight steel tube which had subsequently been placed inside a six foot long steel pipe which had been welded in part and then wired into the ignition of the vehicle. When the ignition had been activated the complex device had caused a sizable blast that had exploded directly beneath the driver's seat. As it was the explosion had been that fierce that it had slammed Margaret upwards into the roof of the vehicle, which had completely buckled under the impact. It was only that the vehicle was quite large and sturdy that had saved Margaret from death, but she was left with extensive and severe wounds to her lower body. 
Margaret was rushed to French A Hospital in Bristol, about 10 miles away from the farmhouse, where surgeons spent hours removing hundreds of lead pellets from her body, more than a pound in weight of lead pellets in total, as well as dealing with the extensive injuries to her lower body, which included large areas of missing and burnt flesh and multiple broken bones. Graham had called an ambulance and police immediately, and when police arrived they were completely baffled by an apparent lack of motive, but previous events at the farm that had been reported to the local police and logged soon made them consider that the bomb had not been meant for Margaret Backhouse at all. The intended victim was more likely Graham Backhouse. At the beginning of 1984, Backhouse had attended the local police station and reported receiving an anonymous letter threatening his life. He'd unfortunately destroyed the letter and so couldn't produce it, but he told the on-duty officer, PC Chris Beardwell, exactly what he could remember of the contents. The letter set out to say that Backhouse would have to pay for ruining the sender's sister, and some days later, Backhouse again attended the police station, this time claiming that he'd received a series of anonymous telephone calls, again in which his life had been threatened. Then by the 30th of March, the campaign against Backhouse took yet another ominous turn. That day, he yet again contacted police to inform them that outside his farmhouse, impaled on a fence stake, was a crudely hacked off sheep's head, with a scribbled note pinned to it, reading ominously, You next. Backhouse had kept this bloodstain note, and he handed it in to police. The gruesome discovery had been found by John Russell, who right away had a theory about the message. It was unmistakable to him the meaning behind it. Graham Backhouse was thought of in contrasting ways by different people who lived in the area. He was a notorious local womanizer, known by many as the Ram, and one who used women as casually as people chew gum, which caused many to look at him with disfavour. Yet others could see past this aspect of Backhouse, preferring to see him instead as a devoted father and son. The message, taken into account with a purported letter threatening to make Backhouse pay for ruining his sister, seemed most likely to be a warning to Backhouse to keep it in his pants and to stay in his own bed. And now it appeared that the sender had indeed carried out the threat of trying to make Backhouse pay and make him next but had gotten and almost killed Margaret Backhouse instead. Police now had to take seriously the possibility that there was an unknown person out there who had a murderous grudge against Graham Backhouse. It was an alarming escalation in the growing hate campaign against him, and was a threat that they couldn't afford to ignore. While letters are disturbing enough, and finding something as horrific as a severed sheep's head on your garden gatepost is frightening, until the campaigner did something more, police were a bit powerless. So they did do something more. They set a car bomb. That's a massive escalation. And whilst Margaret lay in hospital, an armed guard was placed on the backhouse farm. A pair of police officers, a male and female in plain clothes, kept a discreet watch on Widdenhill Farm around the clock, hoping to catch the culprit in the act of committing further menacing activities. A few days later, Backhouse handed the police a letter, yet another from the mystery sender, which had arrived that morning in the post. The envelope had a Bristol postmark and was crudely scrawled and poorly spelt, simply saying, 
came tight last week, but the pigs were about to see you soon. The contents were noted and the letter was immediately sent for forensic analysis. Detectives noted that the words twice and were had been misspelled in the note and the letter had been printed with any form of handwriting impossible to determine. When detectives investigating the attempted murder and the harassment had questioned Graham Backhouse about anyone who may possibly bear him a grudge, he had admitted to having had many affairs with several women. There had been so many over the years, he claimed, that he couldn't even remember all of their names, and he indicated that any one of the husbands of these women would have a grudge against the Randy Farmer, and therefore any of them could be a suspect. If you Google Graham Backhouse after this episode, I personally can't see myself how he could be considered such a top shagger, but apparently he was. See what you think. Backhouse then suggested that the possible culprit could be a close friend of his, David Hodgkinson, who was actually so close a friend to him that he'd been best man for Graham when he'd married Margaret in 1974. Backhouse claimed that he'd gone on to have an affair with his friend's wife, and since Hodgkinson was a quarry worker who worked legitimately with and had access to explosives, plus was a qualified electrician who specialised in auto-electrical wiring, there was a prime suspect for a bomb maker. Hodgkinson was subsequently arrested and held for three days of intensive questioning, after which he was cleared of suspicion and eliminated from the inquiry. Now that's a nice way to say thanks for being your best man, isn't it? Like boffing his wife. Lovely. Another person claimed by Backhouse as likely to hold a grudge against him was his close neighbour, 63-year-old Colin Bedale Taylor, who lived with his wife Margaret just 300 yards away from Widdenhill Farm in a property known as the Gatehouse on Horton Hill. The two men were once amiable neighbours, but had fallen out over a disagreement over right away through Backhouse's land, and angry words had been exchanged between the two. Colin had been an officer in the British Army before taking an early pension and moving on to a role as a company executive with a Bristol firm. He'd lived in Horton for many years and was universally liked and respected in the area, being known as a courteous gentleman. Now he was retired, he passed his time repairing furniture and was known to be a skilled craftsman, but where he and his wife were once outgoing and sociable, tragedy had struck the Bedale Taylors two years previously in September 1982, and ever since then they'd kept pretty much to themselves. Their 18-year-old son Digby had been killed in a car accident, which had understandably hit the couple very hard, Colin especially taking it very badly and suffering severe depression because of it. Police learned that one of Graham Backhouse's former employees had been the other driver in the fatal accident. When the case had come to court, the driver of the other car had been acquitted of causing death by dangerous driving, so this would have upset the Bedell Taylors considerably as you can imagine, but then the man had been employed by Backhouse, which he claimed Colin Bedale Taylor had resented. Then Backhouse went a bit maverick and he kind of fell out with the police. Nine days after the bombing, on the 18th of April, Backhouse told Detective Inspector David Edwards that he wanted police officers off his land. In what seemed to be a strange show of gratitude, for the people protecting him from serious and vengeful threats, 
Backhouse claimed that if the mystery bomber intended to commit another attack or an attempt upon him, then he'd prefer it to come before Margaret left hospital and came home. And he retorted that wasn't likely to happen, in his own words, with police crawling about all over the bloody place. He was adamant about this that he wanted the police presence gone, despite police trying to convince him otherwise that their continued presence was for the best until the bomber was caught. They had no option but to respect his wishes and withdraw officers complying with his request. Backhouse was advised to carefully check and lock all of his vehicles each day and to ensure that all of the farm buildings were properly locked and secured each night. Backhouse told one of the local officers that he'd be carrying a shotgun around whilst doing so, and the officer had warned him against this, telling him that there'd be severe consequences for Backhouse if he shot someone, even if he was protecting himself. With Backhouse fully briefed, before police left, however, they also installed a panic button at the farmhouse which was installed in Graham Backhouse's study. This is a simple button that was linked into an alarm installed at the Staple Hill Divisional Control Headquarters in Bristol where the hunt for the bomber was being led from and where it would sound if the alarm was activated. Both Backhouse and the police were in agreement that although police presence was more effective, this was adequate protection. That panic button was pressed and sounded at Staple Hill Police Station at 8.24pm on Monday the 30th of April 1984. Ten minutes after the alarm had been activated, patrol cars from Staple Hill arrived at Widden Hill Farm and a team of officers dashed in to the farmhouse to be confronted with a shocking sight. In the study, they found Graham Backhouse lying on the floor hunched over and sobbing. He was covered in blood and lying beside him was a double barrel shotgun which had recently been fired. The smell of gunpowder was still acrid around the farmhouse. PC John Yearden examined Backhouse and found him to be severely wounded. He had a knife slash running across his face from his chin to his left ear. It looked horrendous and he was bleeding severely from it. Across his body, running from his left shoulder, past his right hip was another substantial knife wound. Just off to the side of the staircase to the study, down a short hallway, was the farmhouse kitchen and in here they showed signs of a struggle. Chairs had been overturned and there were spots of blood throughout, over the floor and on the kitchen table. At the foot of the stairs that led to the study was the body of an elderly man that was soon identified as Colin Bidale Taylor. Clearly dead, he'd been shot in the chest at point-blank range, and still limply grasped in his right hand was a razor-sharp, orange-handled Stanley knife, the weapon that had apparently inflicted the horrific wound on Graham Backhouse. Detective Sergeant Paul Morgan reached down and found that he had no problem in removing the knife from Bedale Taylor's hand. There was hardly any grip on it at all. Looking at the knife, the officer could see that the weapon was inscribed with the initial CBT that had been scratched into the handle. Scenes of crime officers and forensic specialists were called into the scene, and whilst they began a thorough examination, Graham Backhouse was rushed to the same Bristol hospital where Margaret was still recovering. 
Aside from the severe facial wound, which would require Backhouse having 80 stitches and would leave him horribly scarred for life, he also had a series of deep cuts to his chest, leaving a sizeable scar from his left shoulder around to his right hip. From his hospital bed, Backhouse told police when interviewed what had happened at the farmhouse that evening. According to Backhouse, he'd been at home alone that evening as his two children were staying with their grandparents. Bidale Taylor had called at Widden Hill Farm that evening at about 7.30pm and Backhouse had invited him in for coffee. After chatting in the kitchen for a while and inquiring after Margaret, Bidale Taylor said that he had come to repair an old wooden chest in the farm. Backhouse claimed that he told Bidale Taylor that the chest didn't need repairing, but Bidale Taylor had insisted that God had sent him and had then demanded to know why Backhouse had killed his son. Backhouse said, He said that God had sent him, and I sort of laughed. He said it was blasphemy to laugh at God. I became annoyed at this, and told him to piss off. Backhouse said that he was by that time deeply suspicious now, and he asked Bedale Taylor outright if he was responsible for planting the bomb under his car, to which Bedale Taylor replied that he had indeed, but he wouldn't fail again. He seemed to then stop and pray for a moment, and then pulled out a Stanley knife and attacked Backhouse with it, slashing him across the face. Backhouse said that he jumped back from the struggle, but not before he'd received the facial wound and an equally severe slash mark that ran from his left shoulder across to his right hip. He'd fled down the hallway and had managed to grab his shotgun from underneath the stairs and had then backed slowly up the stairs to the study, warning Bedale Taylor to stay away from him. He claimed that Bedale Taylor would not listen to him and instead still pursued him relentlessly. Backhouse then said, When he came on, I became frightened. I lost all control and fired the gun into his chest. So on the surface it appeared that the mystery was solved and on his release from hospital on Wednesday the 9th of May, Backhouse gave several press interviews with a case and all of its sensational aspects, death threats, severed sheep's heads, a car bomb and a religious maniac, the kind of things that sell papers, you know, well, now making headline national news. He was photographed at his father-in-law's home in Wolverhampton, displaying the grotesque facial wound that he'd received, yet still managing a grim smile. He told reporters that he believed Colin Bedale Taylor to have been caught up in some sort of religious fervour and driven by a make-believe grudge, convincing himself that Backhouse was responsible for the death of his son. He'd waged a terror campaign and attempted to kill him because of this belief, and when the bomb had failed to carry this out, he'd instead come after him in person with a knife. But by this time, findings at Widden Hill Farm and further investigations had begun to place a new light on what had happened and who exactly was behind the terror campaign. And it wasn't Colin Bedale Taylor. The orange-cased Stanley knife Bedale Taylor had been clutching when his body was found was examined and was indeed confirmed to have been the weapon used to inflict the wounds on Graham Backhouse. Traces of his blood, which was a different group from that of Bedale Taylor, were found on the blade but a forensic pathologist claimed that two gunshots at close range from such a powerful weapon would have caused instant death and so would have most likely caused Bedale Taylor to drop the knife. 
it was still held in a light grip when discovered, but the palm of his hand was covered with blood when the body was examined also. If he had held the knife when killed, surely there'd be a portion of the palm that the knife handle protected from blood staining. Also the knife had the initial CBT crudely scraped onto the handle. Bidale Taylor was meticulous about his tools, and a search of his workshop during the investigation revealed some 500 different tools. Not one was disfigured in this way. Although some particular tools were marked, these were marked with his name in full. Police did find a section of sawn metal piping discarded on land at Bidale Taylor's home. An examination revealed one of the sawn off ends matched perfectly the section of metal piping that had been used to make the explosive device that had nearly killed Margaret Backhouse. Yet the piece found on Bidale Taylor's property was not rusty, so it was thought to have only been placed there recently. Also the vegetation lying underneath it was hardly dead, and this seemed to police to point just too obvious a finger at a dead man. Throughout the investigation, detectives had been combing the background of Graham Backhouse, at first trying to ascertain any suspects with a grudge, but following the shooting and the questions raised by the examination of the scene, they now looked a lot more in depth, because the finger of suspicion was beginning to point at Graham Backhouse himself, and police were by now beginning to believe that he'd concocted an elaborate charade of being the victim of a vendetta and had gone to the most extreme lengths to make sure the charade was believed. One of the first discoveries detectives made was the fact that Backhouse was in extreme financial difficulty, with around £60,000 owing in back taxes and bank overdraft payments. His farm was struggling and he was proper skint, sinking ever deeper into a quagmire of debt. And what really made detectives sit up and take notice was that just a month before the car bombing, Backhouse had doubled the life insurance payable to him in the event of his wife's death from £50,000 to £100,000, a massive sum of money at the time, and worth more than £300,000 today. Classic motive, if I've ever seen one there. On the 12th of May 1984, Graham Backhouse was arrested and was charged with the attempted murder of his wife and the murder of Colin Bidale Taylor. While he was on remand in Bristol's Horfield prison, it was revealed later that after a release from hospital, police still considered Margaret Backhouse to be in danger, and she was detailed with two plainclothes bodyguards who kept a round-the-clock watch on her. Yet despite these precautions, she did receive a sinister death threat. The note sent to her read, Hello Maggie, it's me again. Now Graham is away for good, I can have a real go at you. I won't make the same mistake this time. You've got to die. So was he still out there? Or was this a desperate attempt by her husband to muddy the waters? The trial of Graham Backhouse began at Bristol Crown Court on Monday the 28th of January 1985, where he stood impassive in the dock the vivid scars on his face clear for all to see. Flanked by two prison warders, when the clerk of the court read out the list of charges against him and asked how he pleaded, Backhouse replied, not guilty, in a loud and confident tone. Prosecuting counsel James Black QC began the case for the Crown 
by outlining the known facts of the case and what he hoped to prove to the jury. It was quite simply this. Backhouse had been so deeply in debt that he had schemed to kill his wife with a car bomb to collect the insurance money on her life, claiming it part of a vendetta against him. When this had failed, and he realised that police would soon be able to link him to the attempt, he lured his neighbour, Colin Bedale Taylor, to his farm on a pretense, then shot and killed him to make him appear to be the mystery person behind the vendetta, and to so throw police off his scent. He then slashed his own face and body with a knife, before placing it in the dead man's hand, and contacting police. But, Mr Black went on, Police and forensic experts were able to find evidence that established Backhouse's guilt and just 12 days after the shooting, he was arrested and charged with murder. The court was told that even after his arrest, Backhouse had made one final attempt to cheat justice. He'd managed to smuggle out a letter to his wife pleading for help, an extract from which read, the police are fabricating evidence against me, and my case is looking black. However, with your help, I can improve the case considerably. I want to fabricate a letter to the press and throw the police case into confusion. So please help me. I must get out of this hellhole. Margaret Backhouse had wisely handed this note to police, and they were able to intercept the fabricated letter, which purported to come from an accomplice of Colin Bedale Taylor and the person who had admitted writing the letters. Mr Black then told the court, Backhouse had admitted writing this letter, which was addressed to the editor of a local newspaper, the Bristol Evening Post, and that he bribed a fellow prisoner with £2,000 to write it. This was a massively effective first blow, and then the forensic evidence suggesting Backhouse's guilt was presented to the jury. This was to prove devastatingly effective. The prosecution first presented the evidence of the notes that had been sent, two in particular. There was the note that had been posted to Backhouse following the bomb, the note that had been deliberately misspelled, and there was the You Next note that had been pinned to the severed sheep's head. On the flap of the envelope that the posted letter had been sent in, Fibres had been found stuck under the sealed flap that proved identical to a brown woollen cardigan belonging to Backhouse that had been found in his bedroom. The U-Next note, when it was examined by forensic experts, had the faint impression of a doodle on the back of it. The note was found to match exactly other sheets from a notepad found in a desk in Backhouse's study, and the doodle was found to be on an earlier page in the very notepad. It proved to be an exact match. Handwriting experts then testified that Backhouse's handwriting, when he was asked to print the words found in the letters, was also a perfect match. He'd sent himself the letters and had staged the whole horrific incident with the sheep's head. The most compelling witness called at the trial was Home Office pathologist Dr Bill Kennard. He said that he believed Backhouse's wounds had been self-inflicted. There was no sign of any defensive wounds to the hands or forearm of the accused, which would be expected in a struggle, and on the basis of his 40 years' experience, he would have expected Colin Bedale Taylor to have either dropped the knife completely if he'd been holding it when shot, or at least to have been holding it in a death grasp. It could not have been held 
as limply as it was discovered by Sergeant Morgan. Backhouse's facial wound showed tentative cuts rather than being inflicted in one slashing mark, and the sizeable wound across Backhouse's chest, due to its length and depth, would have had to have been inflicted while he was stood still, and who stands still while a religion-crazed maniac with a knife has a go at you, and offers neither resistance nor tries to protect yourself? Who does that, I ask you? Another Home Office forensic expert, Dr. Jeffrey Robinson, testified about the bloodstaining that was found at the scene, particularly in the kitchen where Backhouse claimed Bedale Taylor had attacked him. The blood patterns were perfectly formed round blobs, whereas if Backhouse had been attacked in a struggle, the blood droplets would have had the pattern of flight and have been tear-shaped, perhaps with some trailing, like exclamation marks, is classically put. The blobs indicated that Backhouse had stood still and the blood had dripped. No blood was found on the shotgun used to kill Bidale Taylor either, whereas if Backhouse had been slashed across the face first, before grabbing the shotgun, then blood would have dripped onto it. It hadn't. Whilst the kitchen did show signs of a struggle with chairs knocked over, some of the chairs had landed on top of blood droplets, which suggested that the scene had been staged as an afterthought. One chair did have blood smears along the top, confirmed as belonging to Backhouse, and this of course could have been created if Backhouse had grabbed and knocked the chair over during a struggle. But why then, if this was an injured man, bleeding heavily and with bloody hands, were there no traces of blood found on the shotgun that he claimed to have picked up and used afterwards? He'd also claimed to have been attacked and severely injured in the kitchen, which from the blood staining, yeah, okay, can go along with that. Then he'd fled to the end of the hall to grab his shotgun, yet there were no traces of his blood in the hallway, and this would be an impossibility. Two weeks into the trial, Backhouse himself entered the witness box and gave the account that he told police on the night of the murder that Colin Bedale Taylor had attacked him suddenly. He couldn't satisfactorily account for all of the discrepancies against this story that had been highlighted, and he stuck to this being what happened. Following this testimony, at the close the prosecution made its concluding speech, outlining the powerful evidence presented to the jury and ending simply with, We put our case firmly that Mr Backhouse is the evil man behind these matters. On Monday the 18th of February 1985, after deliberating for just five and a half hours, the jury returned with a majority verdict of guilty. Sentencing him to two life sentences, Mr Justice Stuart Smith told him, You are a devious and wicked man, not content with trying to kill your wife, who loved you. You then set about to kill your neighbour, who'd never done any harm to you. The enormity of the crime that you've committed is very grave, and must be matched by your imprisonment for life. Backhouse flinched when the verdict was delivered and gripped the rail, but he said nothing. He passed within feet of his wife on his way to the cells, and he didn't even bother looking in her direction. Unsurprisingly, the couple were divorced soon after his conviction. Yeah, you wouldn't, you kind of would divorce him, you wouldn't stay married to him, really. And he remained in jail, not even bothering to appeal his conviction. And in June 1994, Graham Backhouse suffered a fatal heart attack 
whilst playing cricket in Grendon Underwood Prison near Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire. He was 53 years old and had served just nine years of his life sentence. Yet even in prison he still had the ability to charm the birds out of the trees when it came to the opposite sex, as it was reported that at the time of his death he was engaged to marry another crim named Rosemary Abador, who was a con artist who over a period of years had embezzled nearly £3.5 million from the National Hospital for Neurology Development Charity Foundation, where she worked as a bookkeeper, and she'd used this to fund a lavish lifestyle for herself, passing herself off as a titled aristocrat. She was convicted and sentenced to four years in prison, serving just two of these. Now it's unclear how she came to meet Backhouse, but there's a couple of people well suited to each other if ever, isn't there? Tragically, just nine months after he died, in March 1995, another tragedy was to again hit the Backhouse children. By then, they were in their teens. Margaret Backhouse passed away in her sleep, aged just 48 years old. It's unknown as to the cause of her death. Isn't this a horrendously evil crime, and it's all done simply for money? Well, further than that, it's for money but it's to save face and to retain a lifestyle that was threatened by bankruptcy. Backhouse had been a ladies hairdresser and he hadn't wanted to become a farmer, but following the death of his father in 1979, he'd inherited Widden Hill Farm, which was at the time a highly profitable estate with a prize herd of British Frisian cows. The sign hanging at the farm continued to denote this, but Backhouse who's claimed wasn't fond of the hard work and early mornings that come with being a dairy farmer, instead decided to make a switch to arable farming instead, with disastrous results as two poor harvests in succession led Backhouse more than £60,000 in debt to the local bank. Now people go broke every day and they pick themselves up and start again but Backhouse wouldn't even consider doing this, because he had no feeling or concern for anyone except himself, and you can see this clearly from his bed-hopping antics, can't you? And the fact that he was prepared to murder his wife of 12 years, the mother of his children, for money. To the outside world, the Backhouses were a happy couple. They were devoted to their children, and they appeared to have it all, but appearances can be deceptive, can't they? Backhouse had over the years gained a reputation as a randy farmer who'd take on any willing female, and was well known for this trait in the agricultural world, where he displayed it as often as he got the chance to on trips away to cattle shows and farm meets. There is evidence that at a time, he was also heavily involved in adult sex parties, and was generally a bit of a goer, although this stopped when he married Margaret, because she wouldn't entertain or indulge practices such as wife-swapping, some who knew him condoned this. They remembered him as a good drinking buddy and excused him the odd affair, as we said, because he looked after his children and his widowed mother so well. Brothers equally condemned him for being a terrible husband for this. Why get married at all if you want to carry on boffing every woman that you can? Yeah, so yeah, he stopped the parties, but yet yeah, he continued flandering on the side, and he even boasted of conquests or scalps, as he so delightfully referred to them, that weren't true. Over a period of ten years or so, he claimed to have many of these, yet several of his scalps denied this, claiming never to have had any sexual involvement at all with Backhouse, and that he was simply an evil, twisted liar. 
It was more likely that by making such claims, it was all part of Backhouse's plan to cast suspicion on either a jealous husband or a jealous mistress. The more of these that there were, in his mind the further away from any suspicion on himself. And as I said before, I can't honestly see the appeal in the guy. Have a look at him and see what you think. He's certainly no Mick Jagger from what I can see. I do believe that he was a classic psychopath with no remorse whatsoever for anyone except himself, not even his children. He was a calculating and determined killer. The lengths that he went to to try to portray himself as a victim show this. I mean, writing letters to yourself, horrifically killing a sheep to portray a threat to you, and then constructing a complex car bomb to maim and kill your wife. So when that fails, shooting an elderly neighbour in cold blood to set him up as the guilty party, then staging a crime scene and slashing your own face and body so the wounds require more than a 100 stitches in total. That's pretty evil and determined, isn't it? Yet his own carelessness and failure to think his actions and lies through ultimately convicted him. What an arrogant, evil, deluded individual. And if there was a hell, one who deserves a prime spot in it. So we have had a bit of a mixed bag this week, and I have had the episode title knocking around in my mind for a few weeks now. The unsolved cases this week, that are Les Bates murder and the arson at the Jolly Farmer, are unsolved cases that I first covered some years ago when I started the True Crime Enthusiast WordPress blog and you can still find them on there. They were both cases that I had planned to cover at some point on the show. There's relatively little available to research about either of them, but links to sources that I used for the episode will be with the show notes as ever. I did manage to get in touch with representatives for the Jolly Farmer, but when they got back to me, they were ultimately unable to move the research on any further. So, But at least they did get back in touch with me, which is very, very fair of them. And it does remain a relatively forgotten and unfamiliar case now. Well, both unsolved this week do, really. But that's what we do on the show, isn't it? That's what we focus upon. Remember the names of Les and Clifford, please. As with the case of Graham Backhouse... I know that may be a bit more of a familiar case to people rather than the usual cases that I cover here on the show, but it's one I thought is a horrific and fascinating story nonetheless, and a tale that I had always wanted to cover back when I first started doing the podcast last year. And with the farm connection, it tied in very nicely to create this week's episode, purely structured around a title that I had floating around in my head. So what do you guys think then? This is where it's always over to you. Any thoughts or theories on the cases of Les Bates' murder or the Jolly Farmer arson? Or Graham Backhouse, evil psycho or just a misguided top shagger? You know where to chip in. The discussion thread for this week is now up on the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Facebook discussion group and as ever, your thoughts are welcomed. Also, I'm about on the usual social media channels to get in touch if you'd like or you can even leave the show review if you'd want to or kindly Patreon the show, if of course you'd like to do so, and of course, if you don't already. The links are all together with the show notes. Plus, if you have a case that you think is a suitable fit for the podcast, and you want to get in touch about that because you fancy having a bash at researching and writing, then please get in touch as mentioned. I shall always get back to everyone, and I welcome it. I have got some cracking ones that I've received. I thoroughly enjoyed reading them, and I'll be bringing you them soon in a couple of weeks. Onwards and upwards for the next episode now, so I'll wrap it up here because I'm just starting to waffle on and on and on. 
Thank you so much for joining me here today. I'm Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing each of you a happy and safe week, and I shall catch you all soon. Take care, guys. Thanks for joining me, and goodbye for now. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart.